It's time to Accelerate. Hey friends, this is Andy. Welcome to episode 663 of Accelerate, the sales podcast of record. I've got two great conversations lined up for you today. Joining me first with Dave Blanchard. Dave is CEO of the Ogmandino Leadership Institute. And I'm flying my talk with Dave as another in my series of weekly conversations with my partner in crime, Bridget Gleason. And this week, Bridget and I are talking about the value of sales education versus sales training. I might think, well, those are the same. Not the same at all. You make sure you stick around, learn more about everything here today. Today's show is brought to you in part by our friends at Discover.org. The Discover.org platform is a game changer for sales and marketing professionals. The feature-rich sales intelligence platform is supported by more than 250 researchers who continually update contact data and provide account-specific insights to help sales and marketing teams break ahead of the pack. You can see the product live at discoverorg.com forward slash schedule hyphen demo. That's discoverorg.com forward slash schedule hyphen demo. Okay, join me first on Accelerate this week is Dave Blanchard. As I said, Dave is CEO of the Ogmandino Leadership Institute. And in our fascinating conversation today, we're talking about creating better habits. Dave and the Ogmandino Leadership Institute have had know, several hundred thousand salespeople take their habit finder assessment, which is a tool for learning your habits of thinking that serve you and learning about those habits of thinking that actually hold you back and hinder you. And we dive today into, we're going to dive deep into how to build on your strengths and build new habits of thinking or new habits of thought and to get rid of those things that stand in the way of maximizing your gifts. All right, here we go. Dave Blanchard, welcome to the show. I'm doing well. Thank you, Eddie. Living in one of the world's uh, most optimistic names, Bountiful Utah. I like that. that nice? Yeah, yeah. Very, very hopeful. I like that. So, um, as we talked about in the introduction, is you know, you're the head of the Ogmandino Institute. I mean, certainly for me, and I think a lot of people in the audience, Ogmandino carries a lot of a lot of weight, a lot of resonance because we've we've all read the book and poured through it many, many times. But but uh, tell us a little bit about the institute and and what they do and how you got involved. Well, I was standing in the cancellation line of the Lion King. 2000 <laughs> on Broadway. Oh, you know, I was directing some commercials for CNBC and Betty Mandino called. She said, Dave, the rights to the greatest salesman in the world are not being renewed. And I wanted to call you first and see if you wanted them. And I said, Betty, is this a rhetorical question? Yeah, I was going to say <laughs> at the time it was just the movie rights. Huh. And after 50 years, it's anniversary this year. We're working on the movie, which is very exciting. Uh, yeah, I want you to make sure people understand. You're working on the movie of The Greatest, the greatest salesman, salesman in the World. The world. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, I leave for uh, Israel on the 29th. I'm there for two weeks, scouting locations and and getting ready to finish up the scripting process. Very exciting. So you're writing Just, the screenplay? I'm writing the screenplay. Wow. It's been 20 years since I've written one. I've written five of them, and it's it's been 20 years, but the producer said, Dave you know more about this than anybody on the planet and, and you know how to write and would, would you do it? It took me five, five weeks to, to go through a process, Andy, where I was sitting at the cabin one day, it was a Sunday morning. And I said, I literally said this, God, if you want me to write this script, you better give me a download. <laughs> <laughs> and I had the most incredible inspirational time writing just as fast as I could. And I went back to the producers and said, I'm in, I'll write it. So, yeah, they're well, sending me to sending me to Israel because they I haven't been. Very and cool. 
they wanted me to go and have a cultural immersion, they called it. So we're really going deep into the culture of that that region to to get a feel so I can come back and bring that texture to the scripting. So yeah, it's going to be made into a movie. But that particular day, we were on a, a call with her attorney in New York and my attorney in California and the publisher in Florida, Fell Publishing at the time. And by the time we got done, we, we had the deal put together. So I came home and left the film business and became the CEO of the Augmandino Companies. It's now the Augmandino Leadership Institute. Mm -hmm. And with the mission of bringing Augmandino's legacy into the 21st century. So let me ask the question then. Is, is, you know, is, is, is the legacy still as strong as it ever was? I mean, are you finding the newer generations are you know, getting as much from the book or resonating as much with the text as you know, back in the 20th century? They don't know the name. Mm-hmm. But when they hear the principles that resonates with them, right. so we've, got, we've gone through that period of um, if you can fantasize with enough intention, you can magically manifest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And everybody realized that you can't sit in your office expecting clients to call you to buy your product. You actually have to go out and do the work, right? right. So we're back into a generation of actually making it happen. And when a salesperson goes out and they start doing the work, they get filleted wide open. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like, whoa, where did all this come from? Yeah, there's Which no hiding. There's no hiding. Yeah. The house you live in, the cars you drive, the clothes you wear, the food you eat, all depend on what you create. I mean, you're, you're front line. It's a great place to be. I just love that space. And now well, they're, ready, they're ready to hear what it really takes. So I think yeah, what? Right. And I think that for me, it's it's very interesting. Is that you know we're living in a an age, and we've transformed our economy's transformed to where more and more people are entrepreneurs than ever before. Whether it's you know solopreneurs or you know doing startup companies, uh, taking advantage of the, the way the technology enables you to to start companies and serve markets and so on, is yeah, I think there's a bigger audience than ever for about how to sell because that's more and more people I think are doing it these days. I would agree. Yeah. So, well, one of the outgrowths of this institute is is really the topic I want to touch on today is is uh, your work with Habit Finder. And so, tell people a little about Habit Finder, and then we're going to talk about what you're doing there. Because to me, this is you know, behaviors and habits are the core of who we are as individuals and how we how we succeed in life or not succeed. Well, here's the bottom line. Okay, we're going to take Og's principles and bring them into the 21st century, right? Mm -hmm. We all know those work, but can we find a way to measure the very habits that we're shifting? Okay. We bring measurement to this piece. Well, I found a formal science. It's called the formal science of axiological mathematics. It uses Cantor's transfinite calculus. Don't need to remember any of that. <laughs> I was going to say, what? Ax <laughs> axial what? Axiological mathematics. Axiological mathematics. Okay. It's a value math. It's, it measures how we think. And using that mathematics, we're able to measure with laser accuracy a person's habits of thinking. Well, we've been perfecting that, not just the science, but how do you display the science? Because we're complex as human beings. Very complex. That's what makes sales so hard. Well, the assessment measures 6.4 quadrillion variables. Can you imagine? It took a couple million dollars to get here, but it's here, mm -hmm. and it's called the habit finder. It 
find your habits, which habits are supporting you, which habits are sabotaging you, and which habits are kind of like a fully charged fire hose that nobody's <laughs> hanging on to, you know, those ones we need to manage. Probably most of them. Well, yeah. so habits are hot, right? As a topic, habits are hot. You know, Duhigg's book, uh, Marshall Goldsmith's book on trigger, which is a fabulous book on habits. Uh, I personally, I follow uh, online James Clear, who's got a big audience, writes a lot about habits. So why, why is it such a popular topic here in the last few years? Well, we finally got to what really matters. Og's been talking about it for 50 years. Our habits of thinking impact every facet of our lives. When we wake up in the morning, how do we feel? Well, what's our habits? What are the actions we take, the decisions we make, the results we create? They're all driven by these foundational habits. We're not our habits because we're metacognitive. We can step back and reflect on that thinking process and say, that's not serving me. Mm -hmm. But far too often, we're tired, overwhelmed, and we, as Og said, I surrender my free will, my free will, me, to those habits, separate ourselves from, those habits of thinking. I wrote a book called The Observer's Chair. I'm sitting in the observer's chair looking over there at my habits of thinking. That I surrender my free will to those habits and the past deeds of my life have already marked out a path which threatens to imprison my future. We're held hostage to our habits. Yeah, but I think, and I, and I agree, and I, but I, I want to make clear to people, is because I know a lot of people maybe have read Duhigg or read some of the others, but what I think what sort of separates what you're doing with Habit Finder from that is the habits, you, when you read about books about habits, typically it's like, um, should I have this extra pizza pizza or not? Right, so it's sort of very action-based. And what you're saying is, well, yeah, before you get to the actions, what are the thought habits that inform that? And I think there's a step that a lot of people miss because, you know, Duhigg's, you know, traced out the habit loop. I, I get it. I, I like it. It makes sense. So I, I, I think I like the way Marshall Goldsmith describes it better with his triggers. But nonetheless, it's still relatively the same thing. But to me, those are like, okay, well, that's, you got to start with the thoughts first before you get to the actions. Foundational thoughts, because that thought, and some of them almost subconscious, are going to determine how I feel and how I act. So if we're going to change the action, we change the thought. The fascinating thing, Andy, about this assessment, we've been living in a world of what we call inductive science. We're trying to induce diagnoses. And so we end up doing assessments on personalities. Mm. I'm a high this or a low that. Or I'm in this quadrant it? or that quadrant. Da, da, da. Yeah. yeah. That's, those, some of those are very powerful. Disc, Myers-Briggs, some of those are very powerful. Uh, Taylor, Taylor Hartman, color code. You know, mm-hmm. those, those, are, those are interesting and very powerful. And well, helpful. That's the pace palette, the color coding? Yeah. Well, the question really becomes this. Okay, so I've got, a, I've got a behavior that's not appropriate. Do I just have a manager manage my bad behavior, or do I get to the thought process, the deductive science, the mathematics below the surface of personality, behavior, performance, and find the thought process that's driving the behavior? We may have someone who's a driver. Mm. The question, are they, are they there with a healthy self-esteem? Or is the driver personality showing up as an overcompensation for challenge self-esteem? Mm-hmm. Well, now we know. 
If we want to manage an organization, I'm working with a publicly traded company right now. It's so fun. We just did all 13 managers at the top level, all the top executives. Mm -hmm. And the question is, do we want, what, do we want to manage inappropriate behavior? Or do we want to help each one of those individuals become the very best version of themselves and show up in that space? Yeah. They chose, let's help them become the very best version of themselves. So we're measuring their habits. We're training and coaching into that group how to shift and manage those habits. And when we're done, he's going to have a team of 13 of the very best executives imaginable. He's a, he's a to manage personalities. Their behavior will be a reflection of their habits of thinking. Well, and this whole idea of managing personalities, you hear this all the time, right? How do you, I, I've had people want to come on the show pitching their pitches, teach you how to manage difficult personalities. It's like, really? I'm not sure that's the most productive way you can go about that. I mean, if you don't have the insight that you're talking about with, with If habits. you don't have the insight or the ability to get down below the surface and find out what's driving the personality... So what sort of got you to thinking about this, you know, this deductive level? Because, you know, I, I don't know, a few years ago, there's a study I saw, somebody wrote about a study that some professors at Duke did that said that much as 50% of our daily actions are habitual, right? Just not thinking. And then, you, you know, you read like Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow. He talks about system one thinking, you know, we want this cognitive ease, you know, we just, we need to have most things be sort of pattern-based and, and habit-based. But again, they're... A lot of times they're talking about actions, but I mean, at least in Kahneman's case, he was talking about sort of your thought processes. Um, so how do you... How did I get there? Yeah. It's really I mean, simple. I'm just flat out a bottom line guy. Okay. Let's get to the real stuff. You know, someone's not ready for the real stuff, by the way. We're not for them. Right. Do you want to get to the real stuff that's driving this team? Do you want to get to the real stuff that's driving this salesperson? If you want to get to the real stuff and you're willing to pay the price, and sometimes that's difficult because management may not be ready for the real stuff. Well, and the real stuff being? The real habits of thinking that are driving the behavior. Right. Understand, under, opening the door, everybody. opening the kimono, and looking at yourself in a, oh, a realistic yeah. light. Absolutely. I love it when a, when a leader says, oh, help me. I want to be the best version of myself, and I want to help my people be the best version of themselves. Versus, I got promoted. I'm going to lift up the ladder and urinate myself, right. corners, you know, yeah. create my own territory, and I'm the guy. You know, that, I think that that kind of a leader is dying. Well, you hope so, right? But I think I think one thing that's that's inspiring about that is this is a one of the reason I wanted to have you on, and a, the key thing for people I think listening to this is that is that learning never stops. You know, you never know everything about your job. You never know everything about yourself, right? And as long as you're in this world, still trying to contribute and make a contribution and, and be valuable to your your customers, or your buyers, your employees, then there's always more to learn. And if one of those areas is learning about yourself, then you could think you're old and set in your ways. Well, then, hey, you've given up. But, you know, this is not a space for people that have given up. I mean, people are listening to this because they want to keep on learning. So, uh, hopefully, I think, I think we're coming into a time when people are saying, okay, I need to surrender the ego. I need to surrender the facade. Let's talk about what really is. Let's get to the, let's get to the next level. I've tried this long enough and it didn't work. I hope and so. courageous enough, I hope so too. I, <laughs> we, well, frankly, Andy, we're finding those people. 
And when you find a leader in that space who's willing from the top down to courageously take that position and encourage his management team, and then they drive that down into their teams, because the, I mentioned the 13 leaders, we've got 80 people below that in the first level that we're going to be able to impact at that level. Can you imagine what would happen to a company from top down with that kind of leadership? where the emphasis is to be the very best version of yourself, bring that to the job, where you have a, a safe place to be creative, to share ideas, to let go of the need to be right, you know, all the things that can really drive I, I, an organization. I, I, I can think of one management organization right now off the top of my head that could really use this. <laughs> How exciting to be able to come to work in the morning knowing your ideas matter, that you're going to be able to contribute, that you get to make a difference. As I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, we, it's ideal. There's no yeah. question, but but there are enough of them that keep us really busy. Yeah, so it's exciting so, to know that starting to catch on that the old school, right, right, wrong, and lose life, death, my way, the highway. We crush people. Great statistic um, came out of the University of Tennessee mm-hmm. that a person holds back in a non-adversarial relationship. Okay. On average, 40% of their energy and productive cooperation until they feel valued as a human being. That makes 40. sense. I would, have thought, I would have thought even more. Well, it is because I said non-adversarial relationship. <laughs> <laughs> so some of those workplaces are pretty adversarial. Imagine what's left out in the car in the parking lot. Well, think about it from a sales perspective. Is Yeah, you walk in. And I've had this, you know, I walk in, especially my early days, I remember going out and making all these cold calls and it was adversarial from the get-go, but we still had to turn that into something that could become productive. So yeah, you probably, probably withheld more than 40% at that point. How many times have you walked into an organization like that, Andy, and you got all the people that they're trying to drive, you know, sell, 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 but there's always one or two in the organization that are really excelling. Mm-hmm. When you spend time with them, discover they're just really good at listening, stepping into people's worlds, asking empathetic questions, Mm -hmm. taking down walls of resistance, creating that really safe place for exploration. And the client knows they're really there to serve them. And they're the ones selling the most. Well, I think that I agree 100%. I I think there's another trait there too, is is I think that these people – Oftentimes, and I have found this, oftentimes are that way despite the culture and the process that they work in. That actually what they're doing is they're actually they're breaking the rules. That's why I tell people, what do, what do top performers have in common? They all broke the rules because they stepped out of the mold that was sort of demanded and expected of them and had that self-insight and courage, quite frankly, to, to take a risk. They threw away the sales techniques and, and actually cared about the people. <laughs> they're, they're dealing with human beings and they connect with the human beings and they solve the human beings' problems. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, well, I, I have this, this acronym that I sort of use that says describe the four core behaviors of successful salespeople. And I, the acronym is BALD, B-A-L-D. It's like, go bald. The first one is, just as you said, it's B stands for be human. Human. Okay. A is ask great questions. L is listen slowly. D is deliver value on every touch. If you master that, 
but it's so hard for people to do sometimes in the situations where they're in because you know they've got these rigid sales processes they need to follow and it's just like Start with being a human. If you can do that, as you talked about, it really sort of breaks the rules to do it. So you've given this. I love your acronym. I love your acronym. Oh, thank you. So, so you've given this this assessment, or you've it's been taken by over hundred thousand salespeople. So, what are sort of the common themes that you're finding from the results? Interesting piece. Mm. A large percentage of them have very high levels of empathy and intuition. Okay. Think about this. They've got the ability to assess a situation with dead accuracy. At the same time, there's so much pressure on them systemically. Right. Right, wrong, win, lose, life, death, my idea. Right. That they have got the world turned upside down. They show up in focused on quotas and structures and systems and proposals and sales techniques process it's and the, the process and the va- process and the people it's process common sense people and we just want to turn the world back upside down because they are for the most part actually naturally natural not naturally but natural Naturally. connectors if they just knew the principles and could be given permission to do it Permission. The top guys didn't need permission. They just broke the rules. Yeah, right. But it's frustrating for someone who feels uncomfortable being the sales technique guy, the process guy, when it's not their nature. Their nature is to listen. Their nature is to to be human. I love that. (laughs) Ask questions. To listen slowly. We call it listening to understand instead of listening to respond. Exactly. Until someone feels understood. That's where the but slowly the greatest comes in. gift they can give somebody in a sales presentation is feeling understood. That's what yeah. brings down the walls of energy and yeah. productive cooperation. That's, you know this. That's, that's what creates the sale. Well, number one, that they're very high level in terms of their empathy and intuition. Because of the sales process, some of them have got some very serious self-esteem challenges. A lot of sabotaging internal dialogue. Questioning worth, <laughs> worthiness, ability, character, <laughs> contribution. Absolutely. I mean, and that I, noise is deafening. Well, and so, it's, it's, I mean, I, I talk about this all the time is that, that you know, take the tech industry, for instance, you know, the SaaS business right now, software as a service business, is, you know, that is an industry that was created off to disrupt, right? And yet, you go inside the companies, and rather than disrupting, they've got the most rigid, Sales processes that are soul sucking for the salespeople, by and large, that you'd ever want to find. It's like, okay, you want to be disruptive, but people can't succeed in this environment. And so, what they do is they result, they resort, excuse me, to quantity. Right? We're just going to do more things because if we know if we do enough things, we'll get enough hits. Yeah. And yeah, it's just crazy. I love the way you talked to it. They, they, they've got it all upside down. It's upside down, and. I- in all fairness, if you're the manager of a team with self-esteem challenges, it's like I share stuff with them and they don't get it. So I take it to the simplest possible structured process because maybe that's what we need. Well, that's not what we need. We just need to be able to measure where their strengths are, play to the strength, quiet the noise. Right. Because the number one challenge in creating the noise takes us to the next measurement. of them are often vivid visualizers and obsessive thinkers. 
their minds never stop. Yeah. And I, not I, taught how to use it constructively to get inspired ideas, intuitive right. impressions, creative solutions. They're in fantastical mm-hmm. or catastrophizing, and they're living in fear. They're selling out of obligation. Have to, should, must, need to, fear of consequences if I don't. Terrible motivator. Create all these expectations. It's not happening. I hate my life. I hate my job, but I have to stay here because this is my income. So I beat myself up. What's wrong with me? <laughs> and you see that sequence played over and over and over. And sitting over here is this enormous capacity for accurate empathy and intuition is not even being touched. Never touched. Touched. Wow, what a tremendous reserve to free up. Can you what? imagine turning a sales team loose on their greatest strengths? Let me ask you a question because this hard trigger thought is, and I've been this has been hitting me more and more recently, and and hopefully I'm not contributing to this problem. But it seems like we have an obsession with excellence that harms people, right? What's wrong with being good at what you do? It seems like it seems like no longer can somebody be good at what they do if they're not excellent, they're no good. And it seems like most people sort of fit in that that middle tier where they're sort of competent, good at what they do, but since they're they're sort of looked down on, they they don't optimize. You know, they do have self-esteem issues. They're not encouraged and prodded the same way. I, I mean, do you see that? I mean, it's I'm concerned about that. I, I was brilliant. And the greatest secret, which is the journalized version is for studying the 10 scrolls found in the greatest salesman in the world. Og said that those who succeed are just a little better than mediocre. We actually teach people to embrace their mediocre because that's the baseline. Now, once you know you're mediocre, take one step up, just one step, not too much, because the brain wants to be comfortable, which means predictable, Mm -hmm. safe. Mm -hmm. We we stretch too far and we're uncomfortable. We go into confusion. And we're not only dealing with our bad habits, we're dealing with the functionality of the brain. So just one step. Now, let's practice the habits of maintaining that one step. And guess what happens to mediocre? It's dynamic. Mm -hmm. Another step. Dynamic. Because if we stretch the rubber band too far, we can't sustain the behavior. And the sales training that we've seen and what people are trying, they're trying to stretch the team up here and they're trying to hold them up here and they can't stay. And this mudslide of unmet expectations sweeps them down. And they not only go below to their mediocre, they actually go below their mediocre, and then they have to recover. So their sales teams are pushed, crushed, recovering, pushed, crushed, recovering. How about if we just take one step, get a new set of habits, another one and another one a year from now? Imagine where that sales team would be at the baseline. Yeah, well, I think that's a problem that, problem that managers have with coaching and mentoring their people is that do just what you say is they set the bar too high. And I always remember... I learned this lesson when I was a kid. I was I was taking lessons on how to teach kids how to swim. And this is from a Red Cross, right? Mm-hmm. They said, I just remember this precisely. I said, you know, the key to teaching someone to swim, small successes. Oh, small successes. And that's like, I've had that as a guiding principle in my life for my entire, my entire career. It's like, yes, is, yeah, just master this next step up, right? Master that. Think about mediocrity. Let's ask your audience a question, Andy. Sure. Have everybody write down on a piece of paper. Let's have you write it down right now. When you think mediocre, what's the word that comes to mind? 
Just have them write that down. I hear failure, average, below average, awful. Do you know what the word actually means? Medius ochris. Medius halfway up. Median? The jagged mountain. Mediocre is halfway up the jagged mountain. (laughs) Embrace that. Take one step up and create a new footstep. Yeah. Raise your mediocre. Mediocre is not your enemy. Oh, I love it. Mediocre is your baseline. Well, that's what I was talking about is that embrace being good. Right? There's nothing wrong with being good. I mean, this is, this just, I said, drives me nuts. And you're talking, you use the word mediocre. I'll use good, but. The enemy of great, the way I frame it. It's the difference between, because what we see in the measurement mm-hmm. is perfection. People striving yeah. for perfection, right? For perfection. We actually say just focus on being excellent. To, to me, that's what, that means the good, because mm-hmm. the perfection is unattainable. Right. Which means we're always living in a little bit of failure. <laughs> always in failure. And if we actually got to be the first human being ever to be perfect, full <laughs> human being, depending on your faith, <laughs> we couldn't even celebrate. Because it's what was expected, and we've got a we've got a nation who's living in perfection. No, we call it the unrelenting, unyielding pursuit of the unachievable. Yeah, well, that's what I was talking about. Well, I used the word excellence. That's why yeah. I use it. Yeah. The semantics, yeah. semantics. No, but your excellence we're, to me is the good. Right. Is the is the perfectionism. I want it to look perfect. I want to be perfect. I want my life perfect. Well. It's pretty hard to have joy around tangible reality because there's nothing about this is going to be perfect. <laughs> you know? Well, yeah, that's that's why I'm also I'm driven crazy by you know people in this industry that you and I are both in the sales industry that are out selling these courses and these events. You're going to 10x your sales, and it's like, come on, come on, you're you know, doing people disservices. To 10 extra sales, they need to do 1% better, right? Let alone 1,000% better. Let's, let's start with 1%. Hmm. I do 1% every day. I don't want Grant to be mad at me. So I yeah, I know, but, <laughs> but he's, Grant's, not, Grant's not the only one saying 10x, right? I, I, got, I got it. Yeah. And more power to him. He's built a huge business to it, but, I, sure. but it's unrealistic. You know, people aren't doing that. Yeah, you're going to get some outliers that will do it. but It's unsustainable. It's unsustainable. Yeah. So Take a step. Raise your mediocre, your new baseline. Take another, raise it. Year from now, be miraculous. Yeah, I, I, there was a paper a scientist at MIT had written one time about change management that you know always resonated with me. I always bring back it's saying you know the way you you know manage change is you implement one change, master it, take the next change, master it, right? I mean, it's exactly like. Yeah, just as you were saying. What what a novel concept, right? Oh yeah, do things sequentially. Yeah, um, yeah. People are hard time hard time with that. So let's talk mm-hmm. about behavior change then. So yeah. uh, first of all, let's talk about the assessment. Is is so this assessment is at habitfinder.com. Habitfinder.com. Yeah. And um, and it's free right now. Oh, you're right. Okay, it's free. Even better. That's yeah, right. So it's just, we're kind of in a honeymoon period with the brand new version of it. So we're letting everybody, you get the whole thing. I mean, not just a piece of it, not a sample of it, no teaser, the whole thing. And you can click underneath my video. I'm on the front page. Yeah, of you it. are. Yeah. And you can have a free 30 minute consult with one of our specialists, just so you better understand all the relationship between the measurements. Yeah. And you want people really to find this place. 
This is, it's the bottom line. It's the foundation. I'm, I'm the fiduciary of the foundational. That's what I call myself. I'm not the CEO. I'm the fiduciary of the foundational. Let's, let's get to what really matters and then let's build. Right. So when people get the assessment, that's, you know, they have these various traits that are habits that are sort of, I guess, sort of sliding scale you have on, mm-hmm. on the measurement. Once they've identified the habit is, so what's the process for change? I mean, is the process for changing a you know a thought habit the same as changing a hey I'm not going to eat that extra slice of pizza habit? I'll walk you through it. Sure. Very first thing that we want to emphasize to everyone, because you mentioned a sliding scale. There's a bar. It's green in the middle. That's the balance, and it goes over focused or under focused, right. yellow, orange, red, depending on the extent and how out of balance that that habit is. The person taking the assessments always the green. We can be conscious and awake and alert. Mm-hmm. There's some things we might say when we're tired to one of our children that we would never say to our best client. We're conscious enough in that moment not right. to say it, but usually. we may not be. Yeah, usually, but may not be that conscious when we're with those we love the most, which right. is kind of ironic. So where we start is with a strength. And it's so fun with a salesperson if their strength is empathy and intuition. We'll teach them the principles of intrinsic validation. How do you step into a person's world and create a safe enough place for a wall to come down so connection can occur and you can have that deep, rich conversation you've always wanted to have? Now, you're fighting all the habits of thinking while Mm -hmm. you're doing this, Mm -hmm. but the experience and the joy of maximizing the strength gives you courage to address some of that negativity. Then we go to their next strength, which is their ability to vividly visualize. And we teach them how to use their gift constructively to get those inspired ideas, intuitive impressions, creative solutions. Mm -hmm. And then we do the one thing every salesperson needs to do, learn how to make the now their permanent residence and intentionally go to their mind to get those inspired ideas and come back here and execute instead of holding life hostage to the expectation. It's upside down, too. So getting that turned around, those three foundational pieces, then we can go into structure and joy and self-esteem. But what we're doing is building on gifts and strengths, which makes us more likely to override a negative and unhealthy habit of thinking. And you and I both know the brain has neuroplasticity. Mm Mm-hmm. When faced at a moment with a decision, we go left or right. We've always gone left. If we start going right and we do it repeatedly, Zog says, I build a new furrow, plant seeds. Mm-hmm. I create a new neural pathway and the brain synaptically prunes off the bad habit. I've got a new habit of thinking. It doesn't happen overnight. It happens over time. But the motivation is not changing a bad habit. It's getting rid of those things that are in the way of me maximizing my gifts. Yeah, I like it. I like it. A little different motivation. Well, and I, I yeah, when you just gave the example about uh you know, learning to go retrieve the vision and come back to the now. I think you know, you put that into the perspective for most salespeople, it's I sort of equate that to somebody spending the commission before the deal's been won. Um there's nothing wrong with being in the present. There's nothing wrong with having, as you talked about, you know, salespeople are naturally able to sort of visualize. And but you need to use that gift with your your prospects and your customers to help them visualize as well what the future may hold. But it, yeah, it's grounded in today. Grounded in today, because if we can teach them how to 
mentally rehearse and seek inspiration, explore possibilities, plan, goal set, problem solve to take what they have and move it forward. Mm -hmm. And they're creating and celebrating, not living in resistance and resentment and frustration when it's not occurring. We can actually measure if a salesperson will walk into a room, sit down with a client, walk away having misread the nod, (laughs) create an expectation in their sales funnel. Yep for which management hates because it doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. And they're constant inf- constantly in frustration because they are already now going back, envisioning the sale occurring, the commission being paid. They might even stop by the carpet store or the Ferrari dealership on the way home to start imagining what they're going to do with the money when it comes. They're not paying attention to the details and the deal falls apart and management's upset because the quote is not being met. And it all started with one specific thought press over-focused on outward appearance. They misread the client. And I would, I would add to that is they were reluctant to ask the questions to, what, to confirm their assessment. Yeah, they didn't think there was a need for it. Yeah. Well, if someone becomes aware that they do that, they become more aware next time they're in that situation. Oh, my goodness, I'm... I'm either intimidated based on how they look or I'm creating expectations based on how they look. Or I'm going to take the positive sign and just assume it's positive rather than ask a question that might say, find out that it's not. Go deeper. Yeah. Go deeper. Because if that's the case, then we can make accurate assessments and based on accurate assessments, then we can have intuitive impressions to help drive the details because we want to drive details. You know, at every deal, it's not just what happens in the meeting. There are so many little things. We're paying attention in tangible reality, the next piece, the next piece, that we call them the millimeters. Yeah. Get the next millimeter, the next millimeter, the next millimeter, because deals come together from millimeters being addressed. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we want to stay in the right place where deals get ha- deals actually come to fruition. Yeah, I, I, I use the phrase, you know, and someone says, well, what what does value mean? Because we always talk about value in sales. And I say, well, value is something you can deliver to the prospect that moves them closer to making a decision. Now, a lot of sales people have a hard time because what they do is they look at the process as a series of five stages or six stages. Well, does it move them to the next stage? No, it just moves them closer. It's a millimeter, right? It's, it's moved them a millimeter. They're closer, and they needed that value. But it doesn't mean they're ready for the next stage. You've got to keep working it. Impatience and this, I said, this process-driven approach as opposed to a people-driven approach. And one of the things that really struck me when I was going through the assessment as well and look at your materials is that, um, yeah, we are complex. And this is for salespeople worried about automation and AI and machine learning coming in and and taking their place. You know, if you're doing sales right, sales is an interaction between two extremely complex entities. As you said, there's quadrillions. Everybody's personality is, you know, subject to what six quadrillion variables, right? Quadrillion variables. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, this is a difficult thing. You know, this is not going to be easy to replace. The way to connect and engage with another person—that's that's not. Machines aren't going to do that very easily. I mean, no matter how much power pro- or processing power increases and so on, and we get better at software, it's going to take a long, long, long time to be able to replicate that. So. Use that as a strength instead of running away from it, which unfortunately you see too many you know, salespeople doing these days. It's, you know, we do this hit and miss prospecting. We, we don't ask the, the penetrating question. And then 
you know, to me, the, the, the big habit that's, that's so self-destructive is the self-delusion about an opportunity where, yeah, you walk away because somebody nodded. You know you didn't ask the question to confirm it, and yet you're willing to go along with putting it into your pipeline. When your manager asks you about it, you're going to sell it, and then you keep on doing that even though you know it's not going to close. Yeah. Or you delude yourself into the fact that it might. Well, that's what I said. You're deluding yourself the entire way. So where, which which habit does that fall into? <laughs> <laughs> it's actually an intrinsic measurement valued extrinsically. An Aleph index one to the power of an Aleph index zero and non-denumerable infinite to the power of a denumerable infinite. That's the mathematics. That's the measurement. When that one's out of balance, we just trigger this whole set of sequences. Crazy. Crazy. Every time. You know what's interesting? I, I just felt impressed to share this with you. you know, we're talking about People instead of processes. Mm -hmm. This isn't a good idea. This is mathematics. Well, yeah. Mathematics. Intrinsic, valued intrinsically, a concept, a human being valued intrinsically. More valuable than an extrinsic thing, a common sense, tangible thing valued intrinsically. More valuable than the structure valued intrinsically. And we have a tendency as a society to value structure in, in corporate environments and in sales teams. Sure. The structure higher than the human being. It's mathematically upside down. It's, not, it's incongruent. Well, yeah. Even Here at Chiropractor, we call it a subluxation. It's out of alignment. <laughs> and that's why it doesn't work. Well, but, and this is, but it's getting worse, not better. Because now, with the influence of big data, and we've got so many data points now because of technology, we can have visibility and transparency in the processes and the actions sales reps and so on are taken, is it measures everything but sort of the human context. And so we've got these tools that, on one level, are quite valuable. You know, they could record phone calls, and you can go back as a coach and a sales manager and help people. But then... What you start doing is start seeing people aggregating large chunks of data and saying, well, in this situation, say this, and it's going to result in a, you know, in order, you know, 70% of the time. It's like, ah, hold on a second. You know, what's the context? Who are you talking to? You know, start with gender, age, you know, go through all these different variables that would change, you know, one of the six quadrillion possibilities. It's hard to normalize that through the data. I'm going to smile and say something. And all my friends that are CFOs are going to, I've shared this with them. So my friends are okay, but others may not be. It's when the bean counter becomes the CEO. Hmm. And metrics drives the process. But we're turning, we're turning people not, into bean counters. Not, yeah. Instead of being human beings. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, think that, I think that's the, the renaissance that's going to happen in sales. And yeah. I'm pushing it is... is the return of the human. Actually, I think that as you get more automation and more AI intelligence being brought mm -hmm. by machines, the ability to connect with another human being is going to become increasingly valuable. Well, it is, as Ogmandino said, the greatest secret of success in all ventures. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Muscle can split a shield and even destroy life, but only this thing we're talking about will open the heart. And until I master this art, I'm no more than a peddler in the marketplace. We don't want to be a peddler in the marketplace. It's not even fun. No. You're a commodity at that point. Yeah. All right, Dave, unfortunately we need to, to stop now, but um, <laughs> we could go on forever. This is fantastic. So <laughs> This has been fun, Andy. Thank you. Well, it's been a lot of fun. So, uh, friends who are listening to this, 
Dave's mm-hmm. going to tell you how to go find the assessment, urge you to take it. Um, yeah, very, very important. To give yourself a data point. And this, this is what we want. You know, throughout everything you're doing, you're listening to this, that's giving yourself a data point. Go take the assessment. It's a data point for you. Could be, could be quite decisive. So tell people how to find it, Dave. Habitfinder.com. It's so simple. So Habitfinder.com. All right. And as Dave said, he's debuting, I guess, a new version of it. So it's currently free, at least uh, for. It's currently free. All right. So, um, and how could people get in touch with you if they want to get in touch with you? Uh, Dave at Augmandino.com. Dave Og- That's easy. Dave, Dave at Just send me an email. He's going to be on site uh, scouting movie locations for the the movie version of the greatest salesman in the world. That's that's uh, very exciting. Well, we're in Israel. That's going to be so fun. Yeah, that is going to be fun. So uh, we look forward to hearing more about that in the future. So Dave, we'll definitely have you back, and great to talk to you. Andy, thank you. You're awesome. Talk to you soon. Thanks. Oops. All right, that was great. How fun! Yeah, a lot of fun. Well, I'm glad somebody else wants to bring the human back into the sales process. That's my that's my <sighs> that's my passion. I mean, I, I you know I look at my own career and I, I tell people I mean, why I'm so passionate about this is you know I graduated from school with a history degree, had no idea what I wanted to do, and got into sales working for you know, if you remember Burroughs back in the day when Burroughs still existed. It was a great home of mm-hmm. many many salespeople. Um, and then sort of found my way working increasingly in or working for companies that were selling products that were increasingly technical and increasingly complex in the scope and the scale. You know, my last company I worked for before I, I uh, started my own company, I closed a $50 million order, the biggest order I'd taken. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I didn't know the technology. I mean, I, I knew I'm a smart guy. I'm curious. I learned a lot, but I knew a layman's version of it, right? But I was talking to people that were hugely technical and and working for a small company and no one knew how did we engage them? How do we win? And you know, as I went back over the years and as I was experiencing and started analyzing, I was like, because the connection we made with people. It started with the connection we made. And you know, we then were able to build the trust and credibility, but you know, it's it's what it is, and it's you know people keep wanting to just see they can defy that, and especially in the tech world these days with their inside sales models. Which I understand the value of doing it from a cost of acquisition, but yeah, you know, right now they the whole method is well, geez, if I send a thousand emails and I get five customers out of a thousand emails, if I want to double sales, I want to send two thousand emails rather than <laughs> rather than well, how can I make that a hundred out of a thousand emails? No one thinks that way. It's always, we're just going to do more because we know even though this isn't optimal, we get a certain hit rate on it. And so let's just double what we've done and we'll get twice the hit rate it's just, or the same percentage hit rate on twice the scale. And it's like, that's just crazy. It's nuts. And I just don't, you know, I'm fighting against it as much as I can, but it's it's like a voice in the wilderness. I feel like sometimes it's just like, that's just not, that's not sustainable. We felt like a voice in the wilderness till the last couple of years. It's, it's coming. Mm-hmm. Well, let's... corporate America is in trouble. They've they've tried to crunch things systemically to squeeze as much as they come out of the bottom, and there's no more to come out. These people are like like one CEO said to me yesterday: "Our people bleed blue, and it's not IBM; yeah. it's another company with a blue logo, but they bleed blue." And I said, 
yeah, and if, and if you keep having bleed blue, it's going to turn red. Yeah. Yeah, they shouldn't be bleeding at all. They shouldn't be bleeding at all. That's right. Yeah. No, I, I, I hope so. I mean, I, I'm pushing it. It's, it's, um, you know, the, some of the artifacts we're seeing, and it's, it's, it's scary from a, you know, for someone who's concerned about the sales profession. I was having this conversation with another gentleman who was a principal in a big sales research firm for years, and and you know, the, the independent research shows, you know, that's. You know, take it with a grain of salt as any research because you don't know all the variables involved. But what they found consistently in this report put out that's been put out yearly for at least the last 10 years is that the percentage of reps attaining quota in B2B enterprises continues to drop year after year. It's now down below 50%. Um, you look at the close rates on mm-hmm. sales in the tech industry, primarily driven by the SaaS business, which is dominating it. Are at twenty percent, meaning one of every five opportunities of qualified opportunities of the pipeline are closing, which is lunacy, right? It's unsustainable. It's just sheer lunacy, and it's because they're all metrics driven, right? That's all. Well, we need to make fifty calls today. Well, why? <laughs> yeah, because I need five conversations. Well, what if I could get the five conversations with seven calls? No, no, no. We need fifty calls. To, it's like, and because the sales managers oftentimes now have such light background in management themselves, they become metrics jockeys. And so, yeah, they can look at their dashboard and say, okay, well, this is what we need to be doing. And so we have this, as I'm referred to in our conversation, is, you know, these, <laughs> the, the irony of these companies dedicated to disrupting the markets they're playing in, having these incredibly rigid sales processes that, that yeah, they're not scalable. You, right now, yeah, most inside sales organizations, you know, they have the what they call their sales development reps that are out making the calls to set up appointments for the account execs. At least in, in Silicon Valley, the, the average tenure is 12 months in that role. They're churning and burning them. And they're doing the same with the lists of customers they're calling, right? I mean, if you have a 20% close rate, that means those four companies that, that didn't buy likely are never going to be a prospect for you. Yeah, it's like, uh, like I said, it's all the stuff that's just like, I think it's just crazy behavior. <laughs> and, and yeah, it's obviously, it's it's habitual thinking and fantasticizing, as you talked about, um, a lot of what's going on in terms of what they can achieve. I have a question for you. Sure. I know the pattern we're saying, that this very systemic right-wrong win-lose Mm-hmm. Metrics-driven approach is showing up in relationships, oh, yeah. parenting. It's everywhere. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, I don't. I don't look at this as being purely a, a sales-related thing. I look at it as being a a life a life thing. Um, so one of the things I'm doing, I, I don't think I'd mention it, and maybe there's an opportunity for us to collaborate on this somewhat. But um, so I'm launching first of May. I hope. Um, a new membership service. Uh, you mentioned a little bit about that. Yeah, and it's for salespeople, sales leaders, looking primarily in small, mid-sized enterprises, um, but not exclusive. I know we'll have some bigger companies join as well. But it's it's a learning platform. It's an education platform. It's not about training. It's about learning. Right? I want people to be learning something new every day. And I've got hundreds of hours of content already recorded. Uh, we're doing going to be doing a bunch of live trainings or live workshops, uh, 
weekly Q&A. We're trying to build this community around this idea of continuous learning. And mm-hmm. But the theme is this three R's that we talked about. You know, readiness, res- relevance, resilience, which to me are, you know, are human skills, right? And it's, it's we're, we're talking as much about their lives as in some cases we are talking about sales. Because, yeah, I think the key to building a relationship is the same, whether you're talking to a customer or you're talking to somebody that's important to you in your life. You know, if, and you look at some of the bad habits that people have, definitely plays in their life, right? You know, if they're having a hard time sustaining relationships in their life, they're not going to be successful in sales. I mean, you've got the same, the same patterns apply. So we're trying to address both the, you know, it's primarily work, but we're also going to be addressing the personal side too uh, through this because, yeah, I'm with you. I think it's... Let's it's, talk about what we could do. By the way, we measure resilience. You're right. It's a mathematical measurement. It's a systemic measurement devalued extrinsically. How does someone respond to a challenge? And we're 2007, mm-hmm. that measurement was out of balance maybe 2 or 3% of the time. We got into 2008 and then 9 and 10 started showing. About 9 and 10, that measurement started going into the overwhelm category. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. everything that needs to be done to get back to where I used to be. Right. I don't know how much longer I can keep doing what I'm doing. Everybody felt like a, you know, a duck looking calm on the surface right. and battling a million miles an hour. We've, that's a measurement. Yeah. And it's out of balance about 90% of the time now. People uh, are overwhelmed. Well, I don't, I, I agree. I mean, I, I I don't see how they societally. could be. I mean, yeah, that's why societally. Well, sure. Because I mean, that's why I was sort of alluding in our talk to. <laughs> yeah. Let's go do assessment of those those guys in the White House and start in the Congress and let's you know talk about dysfunctional stuff. It's like, but I think that scares people, right? That's part of the uncertainty. I think that's one of the things that that I've found that's unusual in my life, and I'm 62, right? Is that so? I've been around a long time. I you know came out of college, got my first job when interest rates were at what. 27% or 20 over 20% Jimmy Carter years. Yeah. I mean, people say, Oh, sales is so hard. I said, no, no. Talk about getting a loan for, you know, a business to buy a half million dollar computer system when the interest rates are over 20%. That's a hard sale, right? As opposed to just doing nothing is what many of them wanted to do. But so we saw that, you know, we had, you know, 88, 89 black Friday, which at that time I was in the business of selling, communications networks that all the stock exchanges ran their stuff on our network. Mm. I mean, we thought we were going out of business that day. I mean, it was horrendous. But, but you know, it's just like, I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's, shit happens, right? It's, and you come back from it. But the thing I've felt is since 2008, we haven't come back. No. People, it, we, it seems like it never... tremendous facade. Yeah. But what's going on behind it is just horrific. Yeah, I just, I mean... And I feel it societally as well, right? As, as, and I think the last election was proof of that. Is, is actually the economy performed better than I think you could have hoped for eight years in the aftermath of, of you know, 2008, what happened. But, miraculous, miraculous. But, right, but clearly there was angst. Yeah, Trump was genius oh. in tapping into that angst among people who felt still insecure. But they shouldn't have. I mean, the numbers say you shouldn't be insecure. But they still do feel insecure. So I think you're absolutely right. It's, and I think this is all over the place. And I think people are just like on knife's edge. Knife's edge. You look at these corporations who cut back. Mm-hmm. 
now they're they're doing considerably more business, but they haven't hired. Yeah. They're expecting more and more out of their people, and they're doing it systemically, driven by metrics. And the people are really on edge. Yeah. It's blowing up marriages. It's oh, well, and part it's, part it's coming on right. It's coming on unraveled. Oh, I think mm-hmm. it is a little degree, and I, and I think part of that too is what companies aren't doing. And this is something I read about last year, or the year before. Is is unlike in other recoveries, is they're not investing in productivity enhancement. Yeah, you know, in terms of technologies, will enhance productivity. I mean, yeah, we've got the increasing you know, presence of the internet, and we've got cloud and blah blah blah. But by and large, a lot of that's not ha- not reaching most of the people. It's not like in the you know when we had the wave of you know PCs coming, then the internet, then mobile, and it's not happening the same way. So people are basically using somewhat the same tools to some degree as they're using eight years ago, and being expected to your point, being expected to do more with less. And that's that's not sustainable either. I mean, at some point, the, you have to give people the means to produce. Uh, and for so, a while, it's been, you don't like it? Leave. We got six people lined up behind you. They'll do it. But it's not true anymore because now we can't hire people. Not true anymore. Yeah. And that's, that's, it. that's the thing that's just so, so stunning about, I think, for many people about the election results in 2016 was just that that there was this anxiety that we all felt, but people thought, well, logically, can't tap into that. But no, there's obviously a huge... Huge swath of America that felt, yeah, I may have a job, but I'm, um, you know, my union's been broke, my wages have gone down, or in real sense, you know, I'm not making the same hourly wages, my benefits are being nicked and dimed here. It's like, yeah, what do I do? The so, referendum on the condition of the human soul. I think it was to some degree. Yeah. And uh, mm. and we're living with the consequences. So, um, <laughs> either way, <laughs> either way, that's right. <laughs> that's right. We can't we can't say it would have been better any other way. But it's we, we just it is what it is. It is so what it we, is. That's right. We deal with what it is. Yeah. All right, Dave. I need to jump and run, but um, Andy, yeah, what a pleasure! It has been a pleasure. It has been a pleasure. And so I'll let you Dave, know, Dave and Augmenti. You know, as soon as you take it, I'll take it. The yeah. schedule time. If we get it down before I leave for for uh, when's that? Israel the 29th. If it I'll try. if it does it'll, it'll be when, it'll be when I get back. Okay. Yeah, if I don't I'll definitely do it when I get back. Um yeah. cuz next week's low we're trying to get our thing launched so it's all hands on deck to get our thing Got launched it. May 1st but uh, if I don't talk to you before then have a safe trip and a productive trip and uh yeah, it's been a pleasure to, to meet you and talk and we'll do it some more. That's great. Thanks Andy. Thank you Dave again that was Dave Blanchard, CEO of the Augmentino Leadership Institute. Join me next, as always at this time, is my friend, well known as Captain Fantastic, Bridget Gleason. Bridget is Vice President of Sales at Logs.io. Now today, Bridget and I are going to talk about the value of educating salespeople versus training them. And I know this sounds like just a semantic difference, and let me assure you, it is not. There's a huge difference between educating a person, training a person, and what that person gets out of it. So we're going to dive into that. Bridget, how are you doing? You can be Andy Fantastic. Actually, actually, you know, I don't think that... that Andy Fantastic. Well, see, you can, no? be, you can be CF, but I don't think I can be AF, you know, based on the way that... What that really stands for these days on, twi- on Twitter. I don't think okay. I want to be that. Um, okay, okay. Well, okay, we'll keep thinking. We'll uh, keep thinking. All right. thank you. That's thank you. all right. All right, so, you know, today, it sort of follows on to some things we've spoken about in the past, is you and I are both passionate about people learning. Not, not, not training, 
people learning and educating themselves. I mean, we, you and I are both big lifelong learners, big readers. And and this is this is something that I've been spending a lot of time thinking about and writing about is you know, I'd written about this uh, just within the last couple of weeks and got a huge response from people. Is I wrote an article in my weekly newsletter saying the title was We Educate Children, We Train Pets. And, I love that one. And um, I'm glad. I'm glad you did. But it's the opposite of what we do with sales professionals, who we train without educating. And I, and it's, I just wanted to you know, get your opinion. We hadn't talked about this. Is, is you know, We seem so out of sync with the training, and yet one of the things we're experiencing is that I see is that it's hard to get our sales professionals, our sales managers, anybody in sales really, to invest enough in themselves outside of this, you know, sort of rote, stale training they get to really learn about sales, about people, about personalities, about psychology, about decision-making, about really even sometimes about the world itself. And in our last episode, we talked about, you know, having this diversity of thought even, an ability to be in the mental neighborhood of our buyers. And to me, this this whole idea of, of sales education really plays into that. I just wanted to get your take as you know what you see. I mean, it's it's not like I think training's not important, but you know we train people on a method, but we also need to educate salespeople to enable them to maximize their potential. Yeah, and their their potential, their potential in every like their potential to be the best that they can who they can be, and that's not just around a methodology. Yeah. That's not just around Sandler skills. That's not just, it's how do we make them better in general? I just, I'm starting um, here at Logsio a, a, sales, a sales leadership team. Mm-hmm. I want to call us the SLETs. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Which stands for? SLT, sales leadership team. Oh, okay. I thought there was a U in there. You're going to, okay. No, uh, slits, slits. Okay, we can be the slits, but slits is more provocative. Yeah. And I was thinking about, all right, what is it, what do I want, what do I want for this group and for this team? And I'm not trying to train them. I don't want to train them, but I want to grow them. I want to develop them. I want to, I want to help them be the best version of who they can be personally, professionally, financially. And so it's not about training. It's more about mentoring. And so it's, it's bigger, it's bigger than it. And I think I want to do this with my leadership team and I want them to do that with their direct reports and so training at a skill level will be a piece of it, but it's only a piece of it. It's only a piece. And I think you're right. We focus way too much on training. Yeah, I and mean, somebody asked me the other day sort of what methodology I, I subscribe to. And my answer was all of them and none of them. In that, yeah, I've been trained in several of the methodologies and certainly aware of many of them. And at this point and over time, at that point when I was trained as well as now, you know, I'm, I'm a sum of all of them. 
right? I mean, I've taken bits and pieces from everything I've learned in my life to bring me to the point where I am to be able to sell the things I sell. And it's been true throughout my entire career. You know, whether I was selling computer systems for $100,000 or selling communication systems for $50 million. Yeah, it was the sum total of everything I'd learned in life, not just about sales. It was about everything I'd learned. Uh, that in this this whole concept of <laughs> we've we've been talking about the last couple of weeks about being in your your buyer's neighborhood, um, yeah, that's really been important for me because I've dealt uh, I've sold to an incredibly broad range and diverse group of customers and individuals within each of those customers, you know, different countries, different cultures, and and languages and so on. That that without that. That's a broader worldview. I would not have been able to do that. Yeah, it's. I. I think. I think that's important. To, if you, if a salesperson wants to also have more breadth, they're going to need to have more than just like this specific training. And I guess Andy, you and I've talked about this also. That one of the qualities that's really important for me and that I look for in a salesperson is curiosity. And mm-hmm. the people who are curious, um, they're always, they're, you know, they're always d- d- trying to learn more and extend their knowledge and listen to blog posts and read different books. And there was a guy I, that came in for an interview and he was telling me that he loves biographies on musicians. And I said, musicians, you know, why, why musicians? Like, uh, are, you, are you a musician? And he said, no, that's why I'm so interested. Mm. I know nothing about them. It's so far away from, I don't, I don't get it. I'm fascinated. And I thought, God, that's really, that's really interesting. You know, just... There's somebody that's very, very curious, and I think will do well because they want to go. They want to go beyond training to actually really learning. Yeah, and I, I, it's funny you bring that up because, yeah, you know, I think about like today I was in the car and, was, and heard an interview with an author about um, how to improve our public schools, and mm. and. No, <laughs> you know, I'm at the point where my kids are, you know, closer to having their own kids are going to public school than than me uh, having kids in school. But, but I find the topic fascinating just because you know, a as a citizen, I'm sort of concerned about it. But b, you know, there are lessons in there for sales, right? About how we how how we educate people because you know part of our job is we have to educate our customers, mm-hmm. right? They don't. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, they have access to information to help educate themselves, but it hasn't, you know, absolved us of the responsibility of also helping to educate them. And and so, like something that seemingly is, you know, not really part of sales. To me, it's it's really relevant. Um, and as to me, that's just sort of an example. You know, so I bought the book because I I want to read it. Um. You know, Chris, Clayton Christensen's re- most recent book about. Uh, what the title was is yeah, competing against luck. Mm. my growth. Well, I mean, you know, that's something that's we're I mean, talking about you know, how companies grow and the role of luck and and innovation. You know, if you're selling to companies, you know, that's that's a really interesting 
sort of perspective to have, I think. You know, as was his earlier books. Um, so, you know, about disruption, it's, it's, it's how do we get people to sort of embrace this idea? And it's, it's one I could struggle with all the time is this idea of, yeah, I need to learn, keep learning. And it's not just about, and I think part of the thing that sort of keeps people from reading more sales books is they think, uh, you know, how much can I learn about sales? And my thought, I think, to yours, what you just said, too, is the curiosity really extends beyond that, right? I mean, think about this guy. He's interested in the biographies of musicians. Oh, he's going to learn something about something he's going to be able to apply to his sales by reading those books. Absolutely. I have Definitely. No, doubt, no doubt, right? It could be about creativity. It could be about disruption, innovation. It could be about resilience, right? Because heaven forbid if you're a professional musician, even the overnight successes are not overnight successes. And, uh, you know, tremendous amount of hard work and discipline and, and methodology and process that goes into it. I said, I'm sure there's a wealth of stuff he'll learn there. Yeah, there's, there's no question. When you also, just in conversations that he'll have with prospects, you've, you've, you have more data points by which to connect. With other people, right, exactly. With other people, exactly. with other humans. And we've talked a lot about that too, the relationship aspect. And to think about them more than a sale. Like this, this young man who I was interviewing who was talking to me about, you know, musicians, like biographies. He likes biographies about musicians. Mm-hmm. A lot of our conversation, even the interview, was very personal, and very um, about him. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's also, first of all, I'm curious about individuals, but it's, it's, I learn a lot about them also and what they're bringing to the, what they're going to bring to the table and how they're going to operate in a sales environment. And I thought about our conversation and when I go, for example, to a board dinner, it's great that there are a wide range of things that I can have a conversation about to make this connection. And they don't have to be all about Logs.io. You can, they could pick just about any topic. And I may have read something, heard something. And if I haven't, oh my gosh, then I feel like I just hit the jackpot. Now we've opened it up to something I haven't even thought about. This is perfect. Right. But I think you just in the normal course of conversation, you're also just a more interesting, you're just a more interesting person for somebody to potentially talk to and make these connections. And it, it does go back to people buy from people and the connection and the trust. And it can only help. You know, it can only help. So one of the the themes that that I've been working with some companies on and and sort of trying to proselytize on is is this idea that we need to fundamentally reshape this perception of how we educate our salespeople. And that it's not just this training; there's this ongoing learning component. And I've yeah had the fortune to interview some CEOs who have taken this to heart and and have set aside time in every single business day where work stops and learning begins. And it's like half hour, 
during a work day where I said, work stops, learning begins. And it's like company-wide book club is the mechanism. Love it. Yeah. And I've, I've done this with some companies. We experimented last year with a couple companies that, that I created a program for them of, of corporate learning in sales and called it a 2010 program. So they half hour every day, 20 minutes of reading, 10 minutes of journaling and reflecting on what they just read. So we gave the, the sales team all had notebooks that they kept with them with the books that they physically wrote down by hand. And yeah, this, the CEO, the one CEO I interviewed that had done this uh, company, not in the tech business. Um, it's amazing what they've accomplished in terms of growth, in terms of employee retention, in terms of employee development. And mm. you know, part of the retention is tied to development because people get new opportunities. They bring more and varied uh, perspectives to the job. So in terms of job satisfaction, and job achievement, even within the roles they currently have, right? They're making a bigger contribution, which obviously has a lot to do with satisfaction and retention and the like. Um, yeah, huge success story for them. But I sort of counter that because I've had, in response to some of the things I've written recently about this, is I've had feedback from from readers saying, you know, I just tried to get my sales manager to pay for me to attend an online event that charged like, you know, 200 bucks and he wouldn't do it. Or somebody actually wanted to go to an event, the three day conference that was put on by some reputable people that I think had some interesting perspectives that would have been beneficial for a salesperson to attend. Manager said no. Uh, and this had, you know, sort of people, person after person, write me and sort of give me these, these examples of sales managers just to say, well, we can't spend time, our sales time to do that. And it's like, well, first of all, people aren't spending eight hours a day selling anyway. Right. <laughs> it's like there is time, but there's this mindset that says, oh, no, we can't do that. And it's like, okay, yeah. how do we change that mindset? Because it's even if we can change the mindset of the individuals, I think the real barrier is the mindset of the managers thinking that they can't, they can't allow that. I, I think it's, 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 a hundred percent. It's the managers. Mm. I, I think that's true. I think it's it's and and how do we change the mindset of that? I I don't know how you I don't know how you change the mindset of somebody that doesn't that doesn't already value that. That's tough. Yeah. Well, I, first of all, you think well, if they just looked at you know certain like in the SaaS business, you know, if you had a sales frontline sales manager who's saying, well, hmm. I'm turning over my SDRs every 12 to 14 months, and uh, my close rates are abysmally low. And, you know, I have a hard time developing my talent. There you know, must be something different I could try, you would think. But I think part of the problem is they're so wedded to some of these activity metrics that, you know, the fear of God has been put into them that if they don't hit their metric, then bye bye. Well, and I think it's the it's the tyranny of or, you know, that um, how can you hit your metrics? Probably an activity metric is probably not the best uh, metric. Mm. I mean, it's a metric, but it's not a productivity metric. Um, so, you know, what would happen if I told you, yeah, I can 
I'm more likely to hit my metric if we allow for this time of, you know, half an hour of down or just we think out of the box a little bit. And that's hard for most. It's hard for a lot of people. It's hard for a lot of people. People, we don't want to do something that's different. We want. We don't want to get called out for. Well, what if it doesn't work? I, well, I think it takes a lot of courage. <laughs> there's, there's that, right? Well, right. Well, I think that's that really speaks to some of the issues here in terms of how we educate people. Is that? And again, I know it's something we've we've touched on before. Is is what do top producers, top performers, the people that stand out? What do they have in common? And, you know, I've studied this for, for years, and to me, the common characteristic of top performers, whether it's a manager or a sales person, is they break the rules. They take risks. You know, they don't play to the exact process. And I think managers, and you, I'm sure you've experienced this, I've experienced it, I'm sure I've done it, is, you know, managers tolerate the rule-breaking of the top performers because, well, they hit their numbers, and then the process becomes what they apply to everybody else. And so we have to get managers to, more managers to think about, okay, yeah, how, how do I take the risk to break the rules, to set up something that, that works to my strengths and the strengths of my team, and yeah, isn't 100% compliant, but we produce a better result. And that's where I think that that learning really comes in is, is yeah, it's, it's your point. It's, it takes a little bit of courage. Yeah, because it's not the way it's it's not the way everybody's doing. It's not traditional. And you're boy, I, I think the tide against it, you're going to find resistance. You're just going to find a lot of resistance. Mm-hmm. And if if I think being a leader though being a leader and being a manager is we've said are two, you know, different things. And, and sometimes, you know, are you going to be that leader that is, is going to go take, going to go take the risk and go do it. But you've got to believe, yeah, I mean, you've really got to believe in it because you're going to go, you're going to fight the tide. You're going to fight the tide. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I'm definitely, I mean, I'm a reader and we've got, you know, book club here, it's an informal book club, but we're, I, I do, a, I, I told my CEO on, I guess it was uh, Friday about, there was, there were a couple books that we've been talking about. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a reader. I read them. I read these two books in, I don't know, four, four or five days. One of them was Phil Jackson's uh, 11 Rings. Mm-hmm. And another one is the first 90 days. So what to do first 90 days, I was going to give it to a manager. And so my CEO was saying, yeah, I, I, somebody else had recommended those and eh, he wasn't that crazy about it. And I said, you know, the book that I, one of the books I really love you and I, I know have talked about it is, uh, Bill Walsh, Bill Walsh score takes care of itself and Bill yes. McDermott. Mm-hmm. Um, Winner's Dream. And he started the book on a Friday and he slacked me on Sunday and said, one of the best books, one of the best books I've ever read. Thank you so much. It's, I think it, and I said, this is what I want this, our sales DNA to be. 
And he said, it's what I want the company DNA to be. It's amazing. So, so make sure people understand. So, Winner's Dream by Bill McDermott. Right. Amazing book. It's a fantastic book. Right. So, that's available. Kindle, hardcover, audible. All of them. All of the above. And what was... Okay, so this is sort of his, his story. SAP. Got it. SAP. CEO of SAP. It's a really great book. But I, I guess my point around that also is I'm fortunate that my CEO is, he's an aggressive learner. He's an aggressive learner. You give him something new, he's at it. He's learning it. He's reading it. He's thinking about it. And that makes it easier for me um, well, we're in alignment, so there's nothing. There's nothing for me to do. It, we're 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 so in alignment. Yeah. All right. Well, unfortunately, we're sort of at the end of time, but this is um, this is a big topic. We've we've t- talked about it before. We're gonna come back to it again. This whole idea of of learning, and and I think the the battleground's gonna shift to, yeah. How do we how do we make that happen? Right. How do we how do we change the dynamic away from you know our our existing failed training system to something that that uh, really works for salespeople, and you know it's going to be a journey, a process. Definitely, so it's a journey. All right, Bridget. As always, what a great conversation. And friends, thank you for joining us, and we'll be back again next week. Until next time. Okay, friends, that was Accelerate for this week. First of all, I want to thank you for joining me. And I want to thank my guest, Dave Blanchard, and my friend, Bridget Gleason. Join me again next week as I welcome Adam Witte to Accelerate. Adam is founder and chief executive officer at Vantage Media Group and Forbes Books. And we're going to talk about how to build your personal authority to be perceived as an expert and trusted advisor in your field. And of course... No Accelerate would be complete without swapping stories with Bridget. As always, she'll be joining me for our weekly conversation. So be sure to join me then. I want to say thanks again to our sponsor, Discover.org, for their ongoing support of Accelerate. I want to thank you for joining me as always. Until next week, good selling, everyone. <laughs>